And everybody else, turn to Mark chapter 8. We are going to, oh, well, we are in some trouble today. It's already quarter till. I'm going to go as fast as I can go, but we've got a great text, kind of a long text today for me. We're going to look at verses 10 through 21 of Mark chapter 8. And uh, so let's just jump right in. If you need a Bible, um, you can raise your hand and you can grab a Bible. You can use a Bible that it's on your phone. I'm teaching out of the New King James Version if, uh, if you want to follow along in that. But um, you remember that when we last left uh, Jesus last time, he had just done something that was very, very uh, significant, something which we said had likely left his 12 disciples uh, with their minds reeling over what it was that they had just witnessed. And remember, it was the feeding, that miracle of the feeding of the 4,000 that happened there in the Decapolis on the Gentile side, the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, which we saw was not at all the same as the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, which had happened just a few months before that, but over on the Jewish side. But the feeding of the 4,000, as we saw, was just this wonderful declaration, if you will, that the, the, the gospel message, right, the bread of life, Jesus Christ himself, which had come first to the Jews in the feeding of the 5,000, but now was to come to the Gentile world as well, in just the same way that he came to satisfy that deep spiritual hunger of all people. And so it was a remarkable event in the ministry of Jesus, and after which we had read that he just sort of, we left off last time in, in verse 10, uh, it said that immediately got into a boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha, right? So with that kind of powerful declaration declared and that prophetic picture, kind of pictured, if you will, Jesus and the boys, they got back in the boat and they leave from that eastern side, from the Gentile side, and they head back over to the western side, to the Jewish side, and to this region that's called Dalmanutha. Now, some of your translations may say they, they got to Magdala, but it's the same region where we've been before. It's right near to Tiberias, which was the headquarters, you remember, and the palace of Herod, right, who kind of ruled over that area, and his palace had been built there on the western shore of the sea. And we know that we've landed back in Israel because look in verse 11, who we see is there ready to greet Jesus and welcome him home. Look at just the beginning of verse 11. It says that then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, right? So here are our good friends, right? The Jewish religious leaders. These are the fault-finding Pharisees. They're still up here in the Galilee, having come from all the way down at Jerusalem. Remember, they had come up, probably sent as an official delegation sent from Jerusalem to get to the bottom of what it was that Jesus was up to up here in the Galilee. And we remember just last time, the last time that we left these guys was back at the beginning of Mark 7. Remember, they had tried to kind of confront Jesus right here in this same area, and he had called them hypocrites right to their faces, and he'd done it in front of this huge crowd of people just before he took off from there, and he headed north, remember, right straight out of Israel. He went on that kind of a Gentile ministry tour up into Tyre, and then over through Sidon, and then down into the Decapolis, which is where we saw him and the boys last week. And it was a tour which we talked about, we probably suspect, took two to three months. And here, just as soon as Jesus steps foot back into Israel, here are these guys again. It's like they have just been waiting for him. And I'm sure that they have just been stewing about him. Right, just stewing in their own juices kind of the whole time. And so Mark tells us the very first thing they do when they see him is they began to dispute with him. And that shouldn't surprise us, right, in the least. And what we're going to see in our text today is that it's their, it's their confronting of Jesus that produces this response in Jesus, which leads to some very important instruction from Jesus on some of what are some very common 
uh, we could call them faith-corrupting pitfalls that we all really need to avoid. So today's uh, text is called Avoiding Some Common Faith-Corrupting Pitfalls. And the very first one of those we're going to see here in the rest of verse 11, right? The Pharisees came out, began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. So they basically start an argument with Jesus. Now, this isn't the first on the list, but this is certainly a faith-corrupting pitfall, right? Don't start arguments with Jesus because you're not likely to win, right? But here, these guys, they basically are demanding from him that he prove to them that he is the Messiah. They wanted them to do something that would prove his divine authority. And the problem was he had already done that. Over and over and over again. In fact, they had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of evidences and miracles to this point testifying to the fact that Jesus was the promised Jewish Messiah, that he was the promised Savior of the world. And we know, now looking back, that in just his first coming alone, that Jesus fulfilled over 300 separate Old Testament prophecies that said what he was going to do when he came, and he came, and he did those things. And we have already seen by this point, again, we're probably two and a half years into his earthly ministry, but if we just think about the land of Israel, right, from north to south to east to west, it was filled at this point with these lepers who we've seen have been cleansed of their leprosy and people who had been healed of multiple diseases, Right? The lame are walking and the blind are seeing and the mute are speaking and people have been raised from the dead. Right? So the whole country at this point is literally jammed with people who have been impacted by the compassion and the power of Jesus as he stepped onto the scene. And remember that Jesus stepped onto the scene after this point where there had been four hundred years of absolute silence from heaven right that time between the old testament and the new testament 400 years that had, there had been no miracles no messages nothing from heaven so that when jesus came onto the scene god had made sure that there had been this extended period of nothing happening so that when jesus arrived that the people couldn't help but realize here is God and he's in our midst. They would realize that this is truly the Messiah. And that's the conclusion that these men ought to have come to on the basis just of the things that they were seeing if they were at all honest about it. But of course they weren't. Their minds were already completely made up. Jesus was not what they expected him to be. He wasn't what they were looking for. What he was, was he was a threat to them. Right? He was a threat to their power and a threat to their position. They had already set their minds on destroying him. And so they come here not seeking to honestly know him, but to test him. And the word there that, that Mark uses for the word test, it's actually the word tempt in the Greek. It's the very same word that Mark used when he talked about what Satan did with Jesus out in the wilderness way back in chapter 1. So these guys are simply trying to trip Jesus up. They weren't looking for a reason to believe the claims of Jesus. They were looking for a reason, what, not to believe them. And here they thought they had him, right? So they're demanding, they say, hey, we don't want to just see another miracle. We want you to produce a spectacular sign in the heavens, right? Don't just do something like we've seen you do. We want to see something dramatic in the skies, right? Moses had provided manna from the sky for 40 years while in the wilderness, right? In the book of Exodus. Elijah had called down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel in 2 Kings chapter 1. We know that the moon and the stars, remember that? They stood still in the heavens for Joshua in the valley of Ajalon in Joshua chapter 10. So they're thinking, hey Jesus, if you are greater than all of those guys, then show us a sign greater than those guys that they did in the heavens. And of course, this entire scene, when we think about it, it's just dripping with such painful 
irony because there, I, I think that the blindness and the boldness of these men is staggering here because they're demanding from Jesus a sign from heaven and yet standing there right in front of them was nothing less than the greatest sign that heaven could ever give. The Lord Jesus himself, you talk about a sign who had truly come from heaven and yet again, they just simply would not see it. They had heard his matchless words. They had seen this multitude of miracles. They had come into personal contact for the first time and the last time with an absolutely perfect, sinless individual, right? This is God manifest in the flesh. And yet in their blind arrogance, they stood there and they demanded from him a sign from heaven. So it's no wonder... Look at the, just the beginning of the next verse. What does Jesus do? It says, but he sighed deeply in his spirit. Now, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know, this is now the second time in just two chapters that we've seen Mark record for us that Jesus sighed. And you remember the first was just a couple weeks back. Remember, as he looked into the eyes and he looked into the heart of that deaf and mute man and he was just about to heal him. And it said that Jesus just let out this involuntary sigh, right? As he just considered the pain and the suffering in just this one single life, right? But all the physical effects that have come as a result of the sin of Adam and Eve back in the garden. As that corruption and sickness and disease and death have been introduced into God's perfect creation and introduced into the human condition, and it touched the Lord Jesus deeply in his heart. And now here he lets out a different sigh because now he's confronted with the spiritual effects of that very same sin. Here's Jesus now being confronted with the pride and the hypocrisy and just that hard-hearted, settled unbelief of a wicked heart that's been corrupted by sin. It's a great verse to start out a Sunday morning with, right? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, the Lord said to Jeremiah. Who can know it? And here I think we see just the ugliness of the human heart on full display. It's this extreme example of the arrogance and the pride of the Pharisees, which of course is our first pitfall. It's the pitfall of spiritual pride. So essentially, you know, they're kind of saying to Jesus, look, you've done a lot of these small time miracles, but it's now time to step it up and come up to the big leagues, right? We want to see something that's really impressive. And this was this very same group of people. These were the religious leaders of Israel, and they should have been the very first to recognize from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the savior that had been promised. They should have in the very first week of his ministry. They should have joined right there alongside him and cried out, hey, this is the Messiah, right? This is the one we've been waiting for. Join us as we follow after him. But of course, instead, we find ourselves now, even in the third full year of Jesus' ministry, they have not only not come to believe in him, They've not only not become followers of him, but now they're becoming even more and more active and aggressive in the way that they're resisting him. And notice that it wasn't based on the evidence. It wasn't based on some sort of a lack of evidence. It was purely based on their pride. Their pride and their sense of self-preservation, their sense of self-importance. Because if you look at the things that Jesus has been teaching, if you look at the life that Jesus has been living, you look at the things that he was doing, all of it was a threat to these men. It was a threat to their man-made traditions and their interpretation and what they had turned the Old Testament scriptures into. It was a threat to their positions Right? These religious positions that they held. And most of all, it was a threat to their money-making operation that they had turned Judaism into. And you know, when we think about these men, I have to say, I think there are still so many people today who are just like this. 
and they refuse to put their faith in Jesus, not because they're lacking the evidence that they need to do it, but simply because they realize, you know, if I follow him, and if I put my trust in him, and if I submit my will to him, it's going to impact my life in a way that I'm not ready for. It's going to require changes in my life that I am not willing to make. And of course, that's that deceitfulness and that spiritual pride and arrogance that, that the human heart uh, has. So they come with their unbelief. They're looking, they're demanding a sign from here. They're puffed up in their own pride. They're headed for destruction. So they're saying, look, we're not going to believe you're the Messiah unless you do a miracle that satisfies us. Right? It's all about what God can do for us and who God is to us. And so Jesus sighs deeply in his spirit. And notice the sigh this time, Jesus didn't simply sigh, but I think it's interesting. Mark is very careful to tell us that Jesus sighed what? He sighed deeply at their hardened hearts because spiritual pride really grieves the Lord. For these men to make this kind of, de of a demand in, from him in light of everything that he has already shown them causes him to sigh so deeply. And, and I just have to think this morning that I, I believe that Jesus is still sighing this same deep sigh even today. And he sighs it just that there is even one person, one single person anywhere at all that there's a single person in Mountain View or Palo Alto or Los Altos or Sunnyvale or in Valdivia in Chile, right? But there's one person anywhere in the world that has not believed him to be the savior of the world in the light of this life that he lived and the things that he taught and the miracles that he did and the fulfillment of prophecies that he made. It's unfathomable in heaven that anyone would still not believe in light of all of the evidence that God has given. And so this is what makes Jesus, look at the rest of verse 12, this is what makes him sigh deeply in his spirit. And then he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, he says, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. Right? If there was any generation, if there was any group of people in the history of the world who was truly privileged, it was this generation of Jews who was alive on this planet at this time of which these Pharisees were part. You think about the people, this nation of Israel to whom God had sent this Savior, this long-awaited, long-promised Messiah in fulfillment of all of these prophecies and these promises to deliver them and to reconcile them back to himself. And yet it's that nation represented by these leaders who will reject him and also ultimately crucify him. And Jesus knew that there was no sign that they could see that would sway them from this predetermined position. Now, Mark omits it for his Roman readers, but Matthew, in his account, he's the one that includes in this very same confrontation, this is the point where Jesus said, in Matthew 16, 4, he says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So this would be the ultimate sign, and even that they were going to reject. So what's the sign of Jonah? Well, it's the coming death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Right? It's the ultimate proof that Jesus is what he claimed. It's the fact of his own death, burial, and resurrection. And it's tied right to this Old Testament type. Right, That picture there in the Old Testament scriptures of an event which was to come later in the life of Jesus. Right, The Old Testament prophet Jonah... Remember, he was three days and he was three nights in the belly of that great fish, just in the same way that Jesus will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth following his death. And so why was this the final sign that was offered? 
Well, because there is no greater sign of the wisdom and the love and the power of God than the death of Jesus on the cross for our sins and then his burial and his resurrection on the third day as a demonstration of his power over sin and over death and over the devil. This is the great single miracle and the expression of the heart of God because it fulfills and it confirms all of those Old Testament prophecies from the written word of God. But we have these Pharisees, and what we have in this group of people, it's the same thing we would have of anyone who does it today, but we have a group of people who are trying to make signs and miracles the foundation or the, the basis of their faith, specifically in Jesus, instead of simply accepting that great foundation for the truth that God has already given to us, right? What is the greatest miracle already in human history? And that is the witness of the prophetic scriptures of the Old Testament concerning who Jesus was and what he did. You see, the greatest sign is that Jesus fulfilled the word of God because that's where our faith comes from. The Apostle Paul, right, he made it very clear in Romans 10, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Because here's the problem with miracles. The problem with signs and miracles is that they will never really satisfy us. Because we get one and what happens? We just want another one. And then we need another one. Because we're never really sure whether it was really a sign from heaven or maybe it was just our circumstances lining up, right? And then we forget that that sign or that miracle even happened about five minutes after it happened. Now, th this isn't saying that we shouldn't seek God for a miracle in our life when we really need a miracle in our life, right? God is still doing miracles each and every day. But what it's saying is that we shouldn't simply seek signs as the foundation of our faith or to bolster up our faith. Because again, a sign will never really satisfy us in that way. And if the word of God, right, if the overwhelming witness of the word of God and the gospels itself and the story of the life of Jesus, if that is not enough to convince a person that Jesus Christ is the savior and to convince them to put their faith in him, then there is no miracle that I could possibly come up with as a foundation for my faith in Christ that will satisfy that need. Because it's the word of God and the life of Christ that's the greatest miracle that could be provided, and God has provided it. And this is such an important truth. It's so important that we understand this, that in what will be Luke chapter 16, the Holy Spirit will devote a considerable amount of space to a story that Jesus told. Now, some people call it the parable of Lazarus the rich man. But what's interesting is that Jesus never indicates that this is a parable, right? He tells it like it's an account. It's a story that actually happened with real people and real events. And he tells it almost as though the people listening would have understood who he was talking about. And all of you Bible students, you know the story. We've got the rich man and we have Lazarus and they both died. And the, the rich man is suffering there in Hades, which is basically hell. And the, the poor man is there. Lazarus is there in the bosom of Abraham. And this is what happens at the end of it. The rich man says, then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, so now he's talking to Abraham, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And here it is. And Abraham said to him, he said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, they don't listen to that Old Testament record. It says, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. 
But if they won't believe the witness of the scriptures, even a sign from heaven won't help. And the very same thing is true for us today. So, so understand this. Even the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus, it isn't simply about the resurrection of Jesus, but it's the resurrection of Jesus as a fulfillment of Moses and the prophets and the testimony that he would do exactly that. It's the fulfillment of those 300 different prophecies that we see all through the books of Moses and all through the prophets. Because short of that, even the greatest miracle of someone rising from the dead is not a sure foundation for the basis of our faith. But really, it just drives us back to the word of God. And, and I think, you know, as I was thinking about this week, I, I think it's probably true that most of us, if we've walked with the Lord for any amount of time, most of us have probably asked God to give us a sign of some kind at some point. You know, maybe it's a time where we're looking for an evidence or we're looking for a reassurance of his love or his involvement or just his presence in our life when we are at the depth of some particular trial that we're under. And that trial just kind of creates this crisis of faith. And we've asked sincerely and with a pure heart, we say, Lord, I just need to know, just do something to show me that you're here. And then what happens? We wait and we wait and we wait and we see that he doesn't do that miracle that we've asked him to do. Lord, all I ask from you is this, right? He doesn't do it. But what does he do instead? Well, he always drives us. He forces us right back to the word of God to answer what it was that we asked of him originally. And what we find when we go to the word of God is that the answer was right there the entire time. He forces us into the habit. He forces us to develop the discipline where we go to the word of God and we say, okay, I'm in a terrible situation. Now, what does the word of God say to a Christian who is in this same kind of terrible situation or same kind of a trial? And what is God's unfailing promise to that person in this situation? And what happens every time? We find a promise. We take hold of that promise that we find in the word. And then we start to build our life and we start to build our faith upon those things. And then we can go back to those things when we need that very same reassurance again. Now, very early on in my Christian walk, I found myself in a difficult, difficult situation. It was a trial. It was a fear for my physical safety kind of a situation. And I prayed, Lord, I need to know that you are here with me. I need you to show me something. And he didn't do it. Right? But I remembered there was this verse that I had heard somewhere in these few months that I'd been a Christian. There was a verse that I would heard and it was, it was something about him being sufficient for whatever it was that we were going through but I didn't know what it was. I didn't know where it was. All I knew, it, it was there somewhere. And there was no Google at the time, right? And there was no Google where I was. So I searched and I searched this one little Bible I had. I searched it for two days straight. For two days straight, I searched the Bible and I finally found 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And I memorized it. And it was the very first verse that I had ever memorized. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And I found it, and I read it, and I knew in that moment that I had just heard from him. I had heard from him and he was there with me. And that verse now has become a sort of a life verse for me. And I'm sure that verse is, the, is significant for a lot of you. But he continually forces each one of us to do exactly that. Because that's the surest thing we can build our faith on. It's the unchanging testimony of the word of God. It's not some random miracle or a sign that he's going to give to us 
at that moment. And this is precisely why Jesus ended, right? The whole Sermon on the Mount ends with these words. He says what? Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken to him a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. And what happened? It did not fall because it was founded on the rock. God knows exactly how we're wired. And God knows the things that will truly build our faith. And for those people out there who believe that if people just see enough signs, they'll, they'll eventually come to faith, well, I would say that those people are presuming to know more than Jesus knew. Right? Because true faith, a, a truly maturing faith, it doesn't demand to see signs, but a truly mature faith simply takes God at his word. Right? And here these Pharisees, they are deep in this pitfall of spiritual pride. They had already clearly shown that they had no interest at all in seeing Jesus for who he really was. This settled unbelief, right? this pride and arrogance, it had sealed their fate. And look at the way that Jesus responds to them next in verse 13. It says, and he left them and getting into the boat again, he departed to the other side. So Jesus responds to these guys by actually not responding to them. He doesn't engage with them at all about this. But almost as quickly as he and the boys had arrived from the other side, they leave the Pharisees, get back in the boat, and depart again to the other side. Now we're going to see this time they head a little northeast up to Bethsaida, right? Because Jesus had very little time for this kind of pride-fueled unbelief. And, and just this, by the grace of God, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but this is a sobering statement, right? Because there does come a point where the Bible says that God ceases to strive with a person, right? And he simply gives them over to their unbelief and to their hardness of heart, right? It's Romans chapter 1 where Paul talks about what are the real eternal consequences of this kind of spiritual arrogance, right? In Romans 1, it says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And it says later, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their flesh. It says later, for this reason, God gives them up to vile passions. It says, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things that are not fitting, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. So all of this to simply say, if you're in that place this morning, this is a very dangerous place for you to be. Right? This pitfall of spiritual pride has eternal consequences. So here we have Jesus moving from here. He's heading back across the lake. And we're going to see in the second half that Jesus uses what just happened with the Pharisees to teach his disciples a very important lesson. He's going to kind of build on this example of these pit, this pitfall of spiritual pride. Right, These corrupting dangers of pride and unbelief. And now he's going to talk about those things that can really distract us and infect us and infect our hearts and draw us away from a very simple faith. Look what it says in verse 14. It says, now the disciples had forgotten to take bread and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Verse 15, then Jesus charged them saying, take bread or sorry, pardon me, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, it's because we have no bread. Right Now, we just kind of shake our heads, right, when we read something like this at the disciples, right? Because even we can tell that this wasn't at all about bread at all. It wasn't at all about who forgot to pack the lunch, the lesson that Jesus is driving at is about something much more serious. It was about leaven. Now, leaven, most simply, it's what bakers use to make dough rise, right? It's a fermenting agent. It's basically yeast. And you know yeast is sold in these tiny little packets. Why? Because you don't need very much to do the job. 
Just a pinch of yeast will work its way through an entire lump of dough and the enzymes are just there breaking down all the starches and the sugars and you know spreading all throughout the whole thing. Leaven was a very common Jewish metaphor for anything that was an, an invisible kind of a pervasive influence. In the Bible, leaven is always used as a consistent type of evil. Right? Something that spreads slowly and quietly and eventually affects everything it touches. It always represents the corruption of something. Very often, it's a picture of sin. Because when sin is introduced, even in the smallest amount, into our lives, right, it never ever just remains small. But just the introduction of that corruption, if it's allowed to remain in our life, it'll permeate our entire life. It will corrupt our entire Christian life. It will even impact and influence our relationship with God. So this whole section is a very clear warning it's a lesson about the pervasiveness of this corrupting kind of leaven and in this context of the pharisees and what had just happened the leaven referred to their unbelief this unbelief that was brought on by this hard-hearted rejection of the witness of the word of god it was really their hypocrisy to pretend to honor the word of god while they acted in an entirely different way altogether. But notice that Jesus warns the disciples about two different dangers represented by two different groups with regard to two different types of leaven. Look again at verse 15. He says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And again, it's Matthew's account in Matthew 16 Jesus includes one more group into this mix because in Matthew 16, 6, Jesus says, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Matthew records. Mark doesn't record it for his Roman audience, right? Matthew includes it. But we have three different groups here, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and Herod, or the Herodians, who were his followers, his supporters. So we have three different types of leaven that we need to be aware of. Each one of these is as dangerous as the other in terms of undermining our faith in God. We know the Apostle Paul, he used a reference to leaven in his letter to the Galatians, and he used it as a picture of false doctrine. That's where Paul says that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? A little bad teaching can ruin all the good teaching. And so it's in this kind of a context that Jesus is warning them and warning us about these teachings or these false doctrines of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians, right? These three things that are absolutely dangerous to each one of us individually, but also dangerous collectively to the body of Christ. Each one of these things is a very corrupting influence to the kingdom of God if we're not aware of them and if we're not really vigilant against them. So very important. And we will look at each of them together next week. So thank you for, no, I'm just kidding. We're not going to, we won't wait till next week. I'll be quick though. Wow, I promise. So the leaven specifically of the Pharisees, remember the Pharisees were the legalists of the day. Right? So the, levacy, the leaven of the Pharisees, as simply as we can say it, is legalism and the hypocrisy that it always creates. So this pervasiveness of corrupting leaven of religious legalism. And of course, a legalist, we've talked so much about it, but a legalist is the person who takes the word of God and they take the commands of God very, very seriously. But then they make the serious mistake of believing that they can somehow improve upon the boundaries of God's commandments, right? They conclude, they kind of decide that they're going to take what are the very simple commands of God and they're going to make them harder. They're going to make them more demanding than God himself had made them. And of course, it's a, a form of incredible spiritual pride that somehow they know better than God. So that's the leaven of the Pharisees. It's legalism here within the body of Christ. Now the Sadducees 
That was the other half of the ruling party of these religious leaders, but they were the theological liberals of the day. So the leaven that they represent, it's that leaven of kind of explaining the way the demands of the scriptures and the demands of the word of God when it doesn't fit what we want it to say. It's when we say, you know what, well, these things we don't really have to believe and, and those things don't really have to be obeyed. And of course, it also is another form of incredible spiritual pride that once again, we know better than God does. So here's this pervasiveness of corrupting leaven, not of religious legalism, but now of theological liberalism. And if we look at the body of Christ today and we think about how much of the body of Christ, now I don't know the percentage, but I can tell you it's very high, but how much of the body of Christ today, of Christianity, is represented either by this kind of legalism, where you have Christians who are making Christianity much more demanding by adding in all of these traditions and rituals and extra biblical kind of regulations or these ex expectations, they're adding all of that into the word of God. But then you've also got theological liberalism and this idea that somehow we can come to the Bible, right? We can come to the word of God on our terms and we can define what we want to throw out because somehow we've determined in our enlightened wisdom what is outdated or what is culturally acceptable, the things we want and the things we don't want. I mean, there's no fear of God in that kind of an attitude. You talk about something that smacks of spiritual pride that is unfathomable, but we have these huge parts of the body at both ends of the extreme, the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Sadducees. But then we have what Jesus mentions here, the leaven of Herod. And that's the one that I think may hit a little more close to home for some of us this morning. And it's a good thing I'm not here trying to make any friends. But the leaven of Herod talks about a danger of a whole different kind of corruption that brings to the body of Christ and the kingdom of God because the Herodians, the Herodians were a group of Jews in Jesus' day who supported this Roman-appointed Edomite family that wicked King Herod was part of. Wicked King Herod, remember, kind of oversaw that province where the Jews were. And these people, the Herodians, viewed Herod as the best hope for fixing the problems that the Jews were facing as a people in the midst of this very Rome-dominated world. So the Herodians were Jews who kind of pinned their hope for the future, not on God supremely and not on religion ultimately, but more practically, they pinned their hopes for the future upon the government and upon politics. So the Herodians are the kind of people who mix politics and they mix it with religion. And I think that the best way to describe the leaven of the Herodians for us today, it's just bad politics, right? So you've got the, the, the pervasive corrupting leaven of religious legalism and of theological uh, pardon me, religious legalism, theological liberalism, and of the bad politics of Herodianism. Now, it would seem that for a Christian, there is absolutely something that would be considered good political involvement, but there's also something that would be considered bad political involvement. Good political involvement includes voting. It includes us exercising any other right that we enjoy as Christians in this country that will help us to be salt and light and be an influence for righteousness and for morality in this culture. Right? Good politics might even include for you, it might include running for office, a political office if the Lord leads you to do that and then occupying that particular position first as a servant of the Lord, in order to really be an influence for the kingdom in that environment that you've been elected into. Of course, we think of Joseph, we think of Daniel, whom the Lord placed both into very high positions within these very pagan governments of Egypt and of Babylon. And yet we watch these men serve as an influence for godliness in the midst of these wicked cultures, right? In good politics, we as Christians don't pin our hopes 
on the secular leaders or on the government as the ultimate solution to the demands or the problems. And we certainly don't look at the health or the advancement of the kingdom of God as being dependent on those leaders or on that government. We do recognize that God's given us rights and he's given us opportunities and he leads us to be an influence for him and we should do that knowing that we're cooperating with him. Now, bad politics, and this is where this comes to this leaven that we need to be very careful of. Now, I don't want to shock anybody, but you may have noticed that our country is fairly divided right about now politically. I know that's a shocker, right? It's quite a time, right? We have got more than a few dividing issues, moral issues and spiritual issues. And so I do think that this warning in our text today about the leaven of the Herodians is very, very timely because bad politics occur when a Christian looks to a person or the government, again, to be the ultimate solution to the problems that are facing society or the problems that are facing God's people, right? Bad politics occur whenever we think that the solution to the problems of a city or a country or a nation or the world are political more than they are spiritual. Understand that every problem that a nation has in any nation, to really address it at its core, you have to back up the truck and take it all the way back to the spiritual, moral component of it, where you've got some spiritual law of God that has been violated, and there are all these problems that come about as a result. So bad politics can happen when a Christian or a church or when a group of people in a community become so identified, not even involved, but become so identified with politics that they start to be looked at more as a political movement in the world as opposed to a spiritual movement. And I'm not talking just about large groups of Christians. I think we need to let this speak to our hearts as individuals this morning because it requires us as Christians to really, when we do enter into subjects that are kind of political in our culture, we need to make very sure that we are being very, very clear as we do. We need to be clear that there's a spiritual issue and there's a moral issue that's at the core of this and that's what we are standing for. That's what we are speaking to. We as Christians have a perspective. Our spiritual eyes are opened and we see the implications. And when we talk to people, we need to be able to bring them back graciously to that place. To say, you know, I think at the heart of this issue really here is this, you know, and, and the Bible really gives us God's perspective and God's solution to this. So don't mishear me. This isn't a matter of being more conservative or more liberal because the truth is both sides so often miss the heart of the issue. But it's all about using this as an opportunity to share about morality from a biblical standpoint. Great opportunities to share God's truth and his wisdom when it's applicable to an issue. And it's also a great opportunity to shut our mouths when it doesn't. Right? Because bad politics can occur when we're, we start to represent that God is for something or God is against something that the scriptures are silent about. Or God doesn't really address or care about. Right? God, bad politics can happen when Christians kind of hitch their wagons to someone who's corrupt and ungodly as the, the family of Herod was. And yet we hitch our wagons to that person because we think somehow they have the power or the influence to get something done that we think is important. But what ultimately happens is that our name gets dragged down when they go down, right? Bad politics happens when we forget as Christians that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven first and we're citizens of this country that we live in second. And here's the real problem. Bad politics occurs when a Christian gets so involved in politics that we lose that quiet, settled heart of faith. And we start to become aggressive and we start to become angry and we lose our temper as we're talking with people and we become openly 
agitated toward people as we're discussing these things. And what happens at that point is we don't look anything at all like Jesus anymore. At that point, we're no longer representing that beautiful nature of our Savior. And we're all susceptible to these things and it can get turned upside down so very quickly and we find ourselves before we know it, we're first infected with this leaven of Herod and then tragically, we become identified with Herod. Any Herod, right? You pick a Herod, but in the minds of the lost, all of a sudden they just simply see us as we've yoked ourselves to politics. And it's so vital that we don't yoke Jesus to anything corrupt like that in this world. And so when we look at these three leavens, right, the leavens of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leaven of Herod, and you just stop and you think about how timely this warning is. And again, we could ask ourselves, what percentage of the body of Christ, and I'm talking here about Christians, real life, on the way to heaven kind of Christians. I'm talking about all of us in this room today, but what percentage of the body of Christ is corrupting the way that the world sees the kingdom of God? We're corrupting it based on, the, on this legalism or this liberalism or this unhealthy identification upon Herod to fix the problems. And I would say that you've got to search very, very hard to find churches that keep themselves from all of these different kinds of leaven. And the tragedy is that it's a really comparatively small section of the body of Christ that's actually rightly representing the kingdom of God before the lost world on a daily basis. And so I think that, I'm sorry to take so much time with this, but I think this is as necessary a warning and an encouragement to us as it ever was 2,000 years ago. Because each and every one of these leavens, it weakens our faith and it dulls our perspective and our perception of spiritual realities. And it's just what we see in our last section with the disciples here in a boat. Hold on. I have a text from the youth group. It says, food not ready, need more time, Donjay's in tears. Yeah, teach as long as you can, use more illustrations and more scriptures. So let's finish it for the kids, right? I mean, for the kids, right? So here Jesus is. He's sharing this with these guys. He's got this critical, priceless piece of great wisdom about the dangers of this leaven. And all these guys can think of is whose fault it was they didn't have lunch. Right? So here we're finishing up. We read finally, but Jesus, verse 17, being aware of it, so aware of what they were saying, he said to them, why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? So here are the disciples, right? So focused on worldly concerns that they failed to see and to perceive and to really take in the things that were happening on a spiritual level. Their spiritual senses were dulled by their worldly focus. They had forgotten everything, all the lessons that they'd just learned. And so here's Jesus watching. He's going to go back over it yet one more time to remind them. Look at verse 19. He says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said to him, 12. Also, he says in verse 20, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. And so he said to them, how is it you do not understand? Jesus says, look, if I could feed 5,000 Jews and have 12 little Jewish handbaskets of lunch left over, right? One, a personal one for each one of you guys. If I could feed 4,000 Gentiles and end up with these seven huge Gentile baskets of lunch left over, right? Enough in a beautiful type for the entire Gentile world. Do you not think that I could not feed 12 of you with one loaf? Like, how do you not yet understand? And how do you understand not understand that I'm talking about something here that is much more serious. See, the, the disciples had not only missed the message here about the leaven, 
but they still had no understanding of the real significance of either one of those miraculous feedings. And I think that it's super interesting. Look there in verse 17, where Jesus says, is your heart still hardened? And it's interesting because remember right after the first feeding of the 5,000, in Mark chapter 6, specifically, Mark says that they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. So here, Jesus is challenging them again. He says, look, this isn't an intellectual problem. This is simply a heart problem. This is a hardened heart problem. But it isn't about hearts that are hardened with obstinacy or with pride or with hypocrisy and with arrogance like the Pharisees. Right? This is a different faith-corrupting pitfall. Because the word is a different word here for hardened hearts, right? It's the same word we saw in Mark 6. And there we remember we talked about it's a word that has the idea of dullness or thickness, right? There was a dullness or a thickness to their hearts. And that was what was causing this persistent lack of spiritual understanding and their short-term spiritual memory problems. Because there's a very direct correlation between the hardening of our hearts in that way and our failing memories. So yet our final common faith corrupting pitfall, it's the danger of a dull forgetful heart. And we talked about it last time again, but it's where we just become too familiar with God and we get too familiar with the things of God and we start to lose that wonderful, beautiful sense of wonder about God. And we just forget about the greatness of God. And we forget about the blessings of God. And we are already so over time. So I'm going to ask the team to come up. And I'm going to leave us today. It says in Psalm 103, I'm going to leave us with this psalm, with a, a good portion of it. Because I think it's a great psalm as we prepare for communion. And really as we prepare our own hardened, thick, dull hearts. We need to prepare them to take communion, right? To take communion as we really spend time and we remember all that the Lord has done for us through Jesus Christ. In Psalm 103, it says this. It says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then the psalmist spends the rest of the psalm talking about all those benefits. And here's just a few. All his benefits, who forgives us all your iniquities, who heals your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in mercy, for as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. And on those who fear him, the Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, all you hosts, you ministers of his who do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. So as the team starts to, to minister now, we're going to begin and we're going to take communion. And if you've never been with us for communion before here, communion here at Calvary Mountain View is what some people would call open communion. And it simply means you don't have to be a member of our church to participate in communion with us. The only requirement to participate in communion is that you're a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus. Because as believers, communion is a time where we look back to that sacrifice that he made on our behalf and we also look forward to when he comes again to take us in the future. If you're not yet a believer, you can still participate in communion 
by simply asking the Lord Jesus to start that relationship with you, and then you can participate with the rest of us. So as the team starts to sing, the communion elements are up here. You're welcome to come forward and to take them and just take them back to your seat. And then just spend some time on your own, just between you and the Lord. And when you're ready, you can participate and partake of the elements uh, separately. If you need prayer for something before you take communion, whether it's just something that's heavy on your heart that you want confessed before you take communion, um, Pastor Jeff is here and his wife Anne is over there. Or if you need uh, just prayer for how you start uh, your relationship with Jesus. They would love to pray with you and encourage you. Um, and for everyone else, let's just really enjoy this time of communion and uh, see what God has for us. So Father, we thank you so much for this morning, Lord, and we thank you for all that we've, uh, that we've enjoyed today, Lord, from your word to the worship, Lord, to hearing from our dear brothers and sisters, Lord, about what it is that's happening Lord, in your church in Valdivia, Lord, and we pray as we go to this time of communion that you would just continue uh, the ministry that you've begun, Lord, continue ministering to our hearts as you speak to us, Lord, uh, individually, Lord, and we speak to you uh, prayerfully, Lord, about what it is that, that you mean to us. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you, and we pray your blessing on this time of communion, and we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen.